the major lesson is that if you have nuclear weapons, you get a seat at the table. You know, if you're a rock and you're kind of hiding the fact or a little coy about the fact you may or may not have nuclear weapons, you'll get invaded by the United States. If you, try, you give up your weapons like you did in Libya, eventually you as a leader will get killed. And if you're Iran and negotiate an agreement, well, the U.S. isn't going to hold up its end of the bargain. So much, much better to just have the nuclear weapons and hold on to them because that is your one guarantee. And you get a seat at the table. Before taking office, people were assuming that we were going to war with North Korea. President Obama said North Korea was our biggest and most dangerous problem. No longer. Sleep well tonight. After a June 12th visit to Singapore for the first ever meeting between the leaders of the United States and North Korea, this was how President Trump summed things up in a June 13th tweet. Sounds promising, right? But before we break out the Nobel Peace Prize polish, we sat down with Assistant Professor of Political Science Raymond Kuo, an expert on international relations in Asia. I'm Patrick Merrill, and this is Fordham News. So, how much safer do you feel after this meeting? Uh, not that much safer. I mean, you know, compared to last year, it's better that they're not insulting each other. You know, Trump's not calling Kim little rocket man, and they're not threatening each other with nuclear attack. You know, the fact that they didn't end up killing each other at the summit, that's a pretty good sign. Um, but generally speaking, I don't know if you really get credit for de-escalating a conflict that you previously escalated. And there has been no real change in North Korea's capabilities. They're still able to hit the United States with their nuclear weapons, uh, their ballistic missile and nuclear weapons technology. So, you know, the on-the-ground facts really haven't changed all that much after the summit. And so, in terms of how much safer I feel, eh, we didn't die in a nuclear holocaust. That's great. Do you feel as if the meeting achieved anything new or concrete, or was it all just basically a photo op? It was mostly a photo op. It had some marginal achievements. But, you know, the uh, North Korea has promised denuclearization many times in the past, 1985, 1992, 94, 2005, 2007, 2012. And there are more that aren't even on that list. Those are just the major agreements. Um, It's good to get North Korea and the United States talking, but the process was a real mess. Um, Normally, the way these summits happen is that you have a buildup on lower levels of the government to try to reach some kind of foundational agreement, and then you build more and more towards uh, uh, more advanced or more uh, comprehensive agreements. And then you bring in the president and the heads of state to finalize those those treaties. Um, So generally, this wasn't what happened here at all. And it was a real missed opportunity, trying to get complete verifiable dismantling of the – setting that as a goal of the meeting. It wasn't going to be possible, and it meant that they didn't do a lot of the lower-level process stuff, you know, uh, information sharing, verification of the number of nuclear sites. We could have done a lot more work to help reduce the North Korean arsenal, uh, even maybe not eliminate it, but reduce it, uh, deter the export of nuclear technology, which they've done to Pakistan, and help to avoid accidents or accidental escalation. So generally speaking, this was this was a photo op, or as Ankit Panda, he's a, a really great uh, nuclear non-proliferation expert, called it a goat rodeo. The major, his major point about all this was that we tend to treat, we, well, especially in the media, have tended to treat the summit as a sort of normal presidential head of state summit, which this entirely wasn't that. Um, you, know, you didn't have the foundational process. You didn't have the lower level people getting involved. Um, there was a danger, I think, even a week before that the the, the U.S. side would pull out. Um, and the lack of the U.S. preparation really showed. Um, you know, the meeting itself was a giveaway. It's something that the North Koreans have wanted for literally decades. Trump's suggestion that we would cancel the, the uh joint military exercises with the South Koreans wasn't coordinated with South Korea or Japan. And then he adopted the Chinese and North Korean language on those exercises, uh, which was a kind of a propaganda coup for the, the both the Chinese as well as North Korea. 
Now, John Bolton, who's uh, Trump's national security advisor, has touted Libya as sort of a model for how North Korea might give up its nuclear weapons. But given that Libyan leader Muammar Gaddafi was subsequently overthrown and killed in 2011, why would anybody look at that country and say, yeah, that's how this should be done? Well, they wouldn't. Uh, if, not if you want to have uh, effective diplomacy. But that's actually kind of Bolton's point. You know, Bolton's been pretty consistent. Diplomacy was just something to get out of the way very, very quickly so we could get to that military solution. To some extent, if I could say that there's a loser in out of the summit, then Bolton was actually it. Diplomacy didn't end in, in warfare, and so he didn't quite uh, – he wasn't able to push diplomacy out of the way to get to that war, that, that military solution that he really wanted. Um, but do remember that, you know, Bolton – it suggested made the Libya connection because he wanted to derail the summit. Uh, Kim criticized Bolton's statement because it, you know, essentially threatens regime change. And when Trump effectively heard that Kim Kim was thinking about canceling, he preemptively canceled on Kim. But that was also a bad move, right? It made Kim seem like the diplomat. Uh, it put China, South Korea, and North Korea all on the same side. And if he had just let Kim cancel it, uh, then the uh, South Korea and the Chinese would be on the U.S.'s side and provide more leverage going into the negotiation. Now, obviously, when you talk about past agreements, the one that's even more recent than Libya would be Iran. Uh, that's the country who managed to convince them to stop building nuclear weapons in 2015, and then we withdrew from that agreement in May. How do you think that withdrawal will affect these negotiations going forward with North Korea? Well, it strongly undermines American credibility. You know, you set aside if you think the, the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear agreement, was a good deal or not. The fundamental point is that the U.S. made the agreement. You know, some people say, okay, well, it was done by executive agreement, but most international agreements right now are done, concluded by the executive. We have very few actual treaties anymore. Um, <clears throat> and if the U.S. is unwilling to abide by an executive agreement that it made, uh, with a whole bunch of different provisions and, and lots of detail, then why should Kim trust anything the U.S. says right now? And that's the fundamental problem of credibility in international negotiations. And reputations, consistency, these sorts of things really matter. And Kim essentially baked that idea in, that the U.S. may not be a credible negotiator, but I'm coming here, I'm coming to the table for this photo op. And he didn't necessarily get tricked into thinking that the U.S. could be trusted because he didn't give away all that much, if anything. Where do you think where do you think China plays in all this? China and North Korea are probably the big winners out of the summit. China is North Korea's only ally. It's, it tends to be an uncertain one at that. Um, they like the North Koreans because they're a buffer state and a hedge against U.S. power. You know, if the U.S. wants to do anything in East Asia, it has to contend with uh, the DPRK as well as the Chinese. Um, and also, any kind of regime collapse happening in North Korea would be really, really bad. Kim's standing in North Korea has evidently increased. Um, the North Korea stays that remains as a buffer state with uh, nuclear weapons. Uh, there was a fear that North Korea was trying to shift to the United States. It's, it wasn't likely, but there's at least the idea that North Korea was going to play the U.S. and the Chinese off of each other. That didn't seem to happen. And the summit gives China a pretext for reducing sanctions. And that's the that's the critical thing. And it's already starting to happen. And Trump talks about his maximum pressure campaign. What that means is that we're getting all of our allies together and, and the Chinese and maybe even the Russians together to impose sanctions on the North Koreans. But the success or marginal success of, of, of the optic success of diplomacy in the summit means that China can already start to reduce those sanctions, reduce the bite that the North Koreans are feeling, and make a lot of money out of the, the situation. Uh, and on top of that, you know, there are a couple wins in terms of you know, 
Trump called the, the joint military exercises war games. He called them provocative. This parrots the line in Beijing, and it's pretty much a, a propaganda coup that you're definitely going to see in future uh, you know, future videos of things from the Chinese. Do you have any thoughts about what might happen going forward? The Secretary of State Pompeo is trying to uh, follow up on these conversations and reach some sort of agreement, but it's going to it's really difficult to see how the US is going to get anything close to a, a coherent agreement out of this or or an effective agreement out of this. Maybe the US will be able to leverage the summit, but you know, if the Chinese are already re- reducing their sanctions, if the North Koreans are getting relief from the things that brought them to the table to begin with, and the US didn't get any of that stuff in advance, it's hard to see how the US gains more of a negotiation when it has less leverage. So my general feeling is that you know, we'll be back here in a few years, just like we have been uh, since the 1980s, if not earlier. One thing I had heard was that there was a possibility that North Korea might be looking to China, a model for them. Kim basically has been looking to China and says, well, they have this style of government, but they still have, they still have free markets. So they get the best of both worlds. They get access to markets, but they still get to maintain control over the society and and get to keep nuclear weapons. The Chinese economic structure and the North Korean economic structure are very, very different. There's a concern, like this this harkens back to old modernization theory from the 1950s and 1960s, that if you try to modernize economy too quickly, you'll end up getting revolutions. And there's some concern that the North Koreans are so impoverished that you know, even seeing Kim go to Singapore and the technology and the kind of standard of living that they have over there might cause some degree of unrest within North Korea. And the idea that they would that that Pyongyang would open up in the same way that the Chinese have done, you know, not, they would be much much more cautious about that. On top of it. President Xi Jinping, has, Xi Jinping has been uh, consolidating national industries. So the lesson that Kim might get, well, we don't need to open up. We just need to have great power status or prestige. And then we will, we can get all the – I can get all the luxury goods I want and I can maintain state control of a variety of different – like you know, military uh, production, uh, agriculture, communications and that kind of thing. In terms of nuclear weapons, I think the – the, the major lesson that Kim has drawn from all this is not from China, but from Iraq, Libya, and Iran. The major lesson is that if you have nuclear weapons, you get a seat at the table. You know, If you're Iraq and you're kind of hiding the fact or a little coy about the fact you may or may not have nuclear weapons, you'll get invaded by the United States. If you, tr- you give up your weapons like you did in Libya, eventually you as a leader will get killed. And if you're Iran and negotiate an agreement, well, the U.S. isn't going to hold up its end of the bargain. So much, much better to just have the nuclear weapons and hold on to them because that is your one guarantee and you get a seat at the table. Okay, this has been seriously depressing. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> but look, you know, I, the way I tend to think about nuclear weapons is that it is a miracle that somehow these enormously powerful weapons have not been used on each other uh, and that we're still alive. And so it's 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 both depressing, absolutely true, but also it kind of makes you really appreciate every day you wake up.